This is day five of this January 2020 Rohatsu seven-day session. <clears throat> and we're going to leave um, Chinese Zen master Da Wei and uh, leave China and fast forward six or seven hundred years to uh, Japanese Zen master Torei. That's T-O-R-E-I, who is the uh, Dharma heir of Hakuin. This is from a book called The Undying Lamp of Zen, The Testament of Zen Master Torei, translated by Thomas Cleary. His dates are 721 to 1721 to 1792, and he wrote this text in anticipation of his imminent death. I'm reading here from the translator's introduction, Tori became a monk at an early age and trained under Zen master various Zen masters, including Kogat. Kogetsu, uh, who's a distinguished uh, Rinzai master. Torei first met Kogetsu when he was only five years old, but the personality of this master already inspired his interest in Zen even at this early age. He was ordained at the age of nine, and he went traveling uh, for study when he was 18. After he had some experience in Zen, uh, he, his teacher uh, advised him to call on the one and only Hakuin. It says here, Hakuin had many enlightened disciples but, by the way, one of them, a woman, he had, he sanctioned, authorized as a teacher. But Torre is traditionally accorded special status as one of two Shinsoku, or genius assistants of Hakuan. Torre was responsible for much of the advanced work of Hakuan's later disciples and also contributed considerably to the systemization of Hakuin's Zen teaching. After Torrey's enlightenment was tested and acknowledged by the notoriously rigorous Hakuin, Torrey's physical health broke down repeatedly, ultimately to a point where he was pronounced incurable by physicians. As he himself explains in his own preface, this was when and why he wrote The Undying Lamp of Zen. At the time, he was barely 30 years old. So, still some 40 or so years before he actually did die. Now we're going to turn to the middle of the text for further material on him uh, in his own words. This is 
autobiographical material. I first experienced distinct clarity on Lotus Blossom Mountain, but when I later went to the cave of the incorrigible, and the footnote here says this was one of Hakuin's pen names. When I went to the cave of the incorrigible, I couldn't even open my mouth. This is after his enlightenment. After that, I lowered my head from the clouds and sought instruction morning and evening. Came back to earth. One day, my teacher, Takuan, said, Suppose a powerful devil came up behind you and reached out and grabbed you and threw you into a blazing pit of fire. At this point, would you have any way out? At that time, I was unable to get up and leave my teacher's room. I was so ashamed that I sweat all over. After that, whenever I went to his room, the teacher asked, Do you have a way out? I could never answer. If I had been like you folks, with your easygoing attitude, couldn't I have answered with an action or an object? Because I deeply respect and believe in the significance of being thorough, I never said anything to cover up. Very interesting position. Not faking it at all. This, uh, this work, this, uh, work of, of Hakuin, uh, approaching him over and over. Do you have a way out? Uh, reminds me of uh, Hakuin himself uh, and his own teacher where uh, he had some kind of an awakening and his teacher uh, uh, threw him off the balcony into the mud and uh, he, is, he, would, he had been full of pride and um, and then he, he looked down at him there in the, in the mud, and he said, You poor, whole-dwelling devil. And then, uh, and then he kept that up with him over, I don't know, weeks, where uh, Hakuin would present something or other, and, and he would say the same, You poor, whole-dwelling devil. That's the translation of whatever it was he was saying. So Hakuin here is passing on uh, the treatment he got. Tori. Now I was un uneasy all the time. Even the universe seemed cramped. The sun and moon seemed dark. In the spring of the next year, 1744, I asked to retire into seclusion to seek thoroughness day and night. The teacher came, I'll say, I'll, I'll keep with his own words, the teacher, but of course this is, is Hakuin he's talking about. The teacher came one day and said, the stereotype of the stalwart is before you. Don't be afraid of the stereotype, just find out the source of the stereotype. This is why it is said that the ancients worried about dying without reviving 
while people today worry about reviving and so don't die. The ancients worry about dying without having awakened, while people today worry about awakening and so don't die. In other words, they they dwell on the thought of awakening, and so they don't. Akuan continued, It's like falling into the water. Only when you reach bottom can you come up as soon as your feet touch. If you're so afraid of sinking that you flail wildly with your hands and feet, your whole body will tire out and you'll drown. Wonderful analogy. Just drop, sink deeply into this mind, into practice. yourself hit bottom so you can come back and out of compassion serve others. This is called letting go over a steep steep cliff then after perishing returning to life. You must be thorough. Yeah, this is unusual as a, uh, an, an account, an autobiographical compass, his use of the word thorough, complete. Don't settle for anything less than completion. And then Tori says, when I heard these words, it was like swallowing ghee. Uh, ghee is, uh, we usually read about in Tibet, it's a, so it's a, the way I've heard it described is uh, rancid butter. It's a it's a very popular uh, beverage among the uh, uh, Tibetan monks. From this point on, my work was greatly strengthened, and I spurred myself on all the more. And then I'm going to skip a little bit because it gets pretty detailed here. Uh, he said he talks about having read the Diamond Sutra, and then the Flower Ornament Sutra, um, the Lotus Sutra. I suddenly realized the Lotus Samadhi and saw all the teachings of Buddha's whole lifetime, as if I were seeing them in the palm of my hand. I ran to tell the teacher. I've wanted to read the canon for a long time, but never finished. Now I see through it at a glance. The teacher said, good. And then, and then uh, he talks about a couple of obscure koans uh, that he was given by Hakoen, and one of them is very long and complicated, so I'm not going to read that, and I never worked on it myself. But then, picking up here, he says, the next day when I went for an interview, that is, going to Doksan, Sanzen, on seeing me coming, the teacher hurriedly stuck out his hand and said, how does my hand resemble Buddha's hand?
I came up with a saying immediately, and the teacher praised it highly. I then said, You recently asked about the story of the woman burning the hut. Let me hit the pause button here and uh, recount this. This is a, uh, a koan that is, um, I don't know if it's in any collection. It's none of, none of the several collections that we offer here. Uh, sort of kind of on its own, a, a solitary koan, and this is how it goes. It's, uh, it, it, Roshi Kaplow, uh, describes it in his, uh, Zen Merging of East and West, I think. One of his books, that was it, I think. Where, uh, a monk is being supported by, uh, an older woman. Uh, he's in a hut up on a hill, and, uh, she, takes him his food. This was a kind of a convention at the time uh, that uh, people who had the means would, uh, f- to acquire merit, would uh, support uh, a, a monk who was in a hut doing solitary zazen. And uh, all went well enough uh, until one day she decided she wanted to test this monk, see if he's how far he'd gone in his practice. So he uh, persuaded his her granddaughter uh, to this time, on this day, instead of she taking the tray up, ta- having her granddaughter take the tray up. And this is the instruction she said, when when you get up there with, your, with the tray of food, uh, set it down next to him, and then cozy up to him, and pressing your cheek against his, say, how does this make you feel? The granddaughter, you can imagine her response, no, 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 no. <laughs> uh, But uh, her, uh, her grandmother insisted, and so reluctantly, but gamely, she went up to the hut, and she did as she was told. She set down the tray, leaned into him side by side, and said, How does this make you feel? The monk drew back in indignation and said, Like a dead tree lying against a cold rock in winter. <laughs> okay, so she took that data back to... Her grandmother, she recounted the whole thing. The grandmother exploded in anger. Why, that good-for-nothing monk. And she charged up the hill and uh, yelled at him and said, what have you been doing, wasting all my my generosity up here? And drove him out of the hut and burned it down. That's it. That's the koan. So it requires that you consider and look into the grandmother's reaction and uh, how the monk might have responded to this without either violating his vows of celibacy or doing what he did, which was definitely he got the buzzer for that one. Uh, <laughs> When uh, when uh, 
when I was helping Roche work on his on the Zen merging of East and West in Mexico, um, he came shuffling over, to, and uh, I was working at my typewriter. This was for 78, 1978, and he said, um, "I'm I'm trying to come up with the." the uh, let me stop for a minute. Uh, he was he was working this into the section of the book uh, of dialogues, where he's uh, uh, responding to questions about this and that. It's about a third of the book is in dialogue form, and they're based on on actual questions from workshops. But he put in a little filler there, and he would uh, sometimes, for the sake of smooth reading and. In clarity, he would uh, uh, come up with he'd be, he'd make the questions more of a composite of of uh, or rather the 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 uh, the interactions uh, the s- approximate interactions in the workshop uh, as questions that he'd heard here or there or elsewhere and. Uh, Anyway, this is how I remember it. And then uh, in laying out this koan uh, in the workshop, uh, he invited people to say what they would do, what they would have done if they had been the monk. And uh, I can't remember. He came up with a couple of things, but he, he wanted something else. So he uh, came to his trusty secretary and said, what, you know, I'm working on this. What? Could you say what might you have done? <laughs> and I said, without hesitation, I said, "Never mind the girl. I'll take the food." <laughs> he lost it. I suppose he thought that that confirmed that I love food as much as anything in the world. And, uh, well, that's not the answer, folks. (laughs) Let's see if we can reel this back in. So here, uh, Tori is referring to this koan. Uh, uh, He he said to Hakuin, you recently asked about the story of the woman burning the hut. At the time, I missed the woman's subtle skill. Saying what she did, the woman couldn't but shock the monk into a depression and puzzle everyone on earth earth to death. I have a saying on behalf of the hermit. I'd grab the woman and say, I've been receiving your support for 20 years. I'd grab the woman... Maybe that means the young woman, the the granddaughter, probably. I've been receiving your support for 20 years. Before I had even finished, the teacher drew himself up and shouted so loud, the sound penetrated my marrow. My chest hurt for several days, and my body and mind were in a daze as if I were in a haze. Very different response than I got from Roshi Kaplow. I thought to myself, I've attained enlightenment clearly. Why am I like this? It must be that even though I have the eye to see my true nature, my power of meditation concentration 
is not yet mature. At this, I vowed to try to perfect meditation concentration. I mean, what is that if not zazen? But as the days and months came and went, as ever, I was still not free. This is a great testimony to the faith and the the uh, standards of Tori or toward him toward himself, recognizing that even after these experiences, there was still something, some clinging to him. Subsequently, I went into seclusion where I could not be reached and struggled day and night just like a condemned man counting the days till his execution. Mightily manipulating the pearl of awareness, I didn't put it down for an instant. Sometimes getting it, sometimes losing it. Does that sound familiar to anyone? I found correct mindfulness hard to keep continuous. Sorrow and apprehension clogged my chest, and I was uneasy whether sitting down or up and about. This went on for half a hundred days when suddenly all fell into place, shattering the luminous pearl, completely bare, totally naked, I truly understood the clear wind after unloading. Even so, my application was not yet thoroughgoing, so I whipped the dead ox again to forge ahead nonstop. Gritting my teeth and clenching my fists, I didn't notice I had a body. Even on freezing days and frigid nights, my clothing was always moist with sweat. Sometimes when the demon of sleep was strong, I stuck myself with a needle penetrating bone and marrow, finding no taste in food and drink, I passed another half a hundred days. During that time, I had insights eight or nine times, and on the last day, I saw through my teacher's everyday experience. Ah, ha-ha! The dead work I had mistakenly been doing, along with the white clouds, deserved 30 strokes of the cane. I I knew in truth my teacher's empowerment was tremendous. If If he hadn't led me along and instructed me so much, how could I be where I am today? I would have spent my whole life mistakenly remaining dead within understanding and knowledge. Now as I think of past events, every word, every phrase was dripping with blood, frightening and saddening. Ever since then, my mindfulness has been uninterrupted. I practice day and night, never stopping. 
How can we waste time idly with an easygoing attitude? I want to practice this path diligently to revive the true way, now in decline, as best I can. Don't you want this too? When it comes to this, please have a single eye. Then, much later, apparently, no, no, not not much later, Um, excuse me, the time, the order of things here is a little, a little tricky to to remember. Then he, yes. Now here, this is, this is his own preface to this book he wrote, uh, The Undying Lamp of Zen. I'm just plucking out these, uh, few paragraphs. After my perception was fully developed, um, maybe he's referring to this final enlightenment, I had not yet mastered the ancient subtleties of differentiation. So I stayed in seclusion for more than 100 days of intense cultivation. Uh, The ancient subtleties of differentiation. So there is the initial awakening, and then there is uh, developing the ability to integrate it into this world of endless differentiation, of of the, the world of discrimination. It's not enough to see uh, the the formlessness of form, no matter how deep it is, then uh, integrating it, assimilating it into uh, this ordinary world with all its complexities, different kinds of people. So I stayed in seclusion for more than 100 days of intense cultivation. A sense of shame and determination penetrated my bones and marrow. Though I'd attained my aim, because I hadn't taken care of my physical health and had overexerted my mind, my internal organs were all stressed, resulting in serious illness. Subsequently, though I relaxed to take care of this, it was by no means easy to cure. I was subjected to mischief mischief from outside or troubled by, by worldly relations. You can only wonder what this, these two things are referring to. Mischief from outside, troubled by worldly relations, and suffered the sickbed three times. Once I'd get well, I'd fall sick again. This went on for three years. The doctors gave up on me, 
telling me that even if I recovered from this illness for the time being, I couldn't have more than three or four years left to live. At this point, I reflected that my life was not worth regretting. I only lamented the fact that I had not yet fulfilled my original vow to help myself and help others and had gone through all this hardship in vain. This is just astonishing. Uh, the demands on himself and his, his uh, standards, integrity. Finally, I emulated Master Sung Zhao, who wrote a treatise as he was awaiting execution and hurriedly set forth this exposition. Uh, this is a remarkable story. I wish I had uh, found the, the exact words. He, was, uh, he fell out of favor with the imperial government and was sentenced to death. And uh, as he was waiting execution, he composed a verse it said something like, "Even though uh, the blade, even though the blade comes down, it'll be like cutting the spring breeze." And he backed this up with great composure uh, just before he was to be executed. And then he was actually—I don't even know whether he was executed or not. Sitting on a cushion day and night with writing materials by my side. I wrote down what came to me, completing a manuscript in only 30 days. And that's this, this book. I call it Discourse on the Undying Lamp of Zen. This is based on the sense of one lamp imparting its flame to hundreds and thousands of lamps in an undying succession of lights. After this, I sat and reclined at ease, leaving my life to fate. Then I felt the illness getting lighter and lighter day by day. After another half year, I knew in myself that I could survive. For this reason, I reconsidered. Had my illness been terminal and had I presented this treatise to my old teacher, Hakuin, I would have asked that he make any useful points of enduring encouragement for later people, and if it had nothing useful in it, I'd consign it to the fire. Now that I had been able to get over this illness, with the living person present, what would be the use of dead complications? At this point, I was going to burn my treatise, but before I had done so, my old teacher personally sent me a letter and I went back to see him. As we spoke in private, I mentioned this treatise and eventually read it to the old teacher. He said it could be a help to younger students and firmly forbade me to burn it. Notice that. It could be a help to younger students. This being so, I nevertheless kept it stored away for a long time. Now, due to the urgent request of believers, I cannot but permit it to be copied.
his enormous modesty. And this, this, this treatise of his, written when he was only 30 or so, um, some 40 years before he actually died, uh, this was uh, published uh, just nine years ago in English. Just cover a little bit here before, in the in the remaining time. Uh, this is a chapter called Faith and Practice, and he's talking about the great power of vows. He says the strength of vows is rooted in compassion. Those who seek their own benefit all remain within a small perspective. They are like merchants. Those who plan for their own success take pride in a little wealth first. Those who want to be charitable to everyone else never think a little is enough. That's a great analogy. Those who plan for their own success take pride in a little wealth, but then they want to be charitable to everyone else. They never think a little is enough. And he talks about the four bodhisattva vows. He calls the four universal vows that we chant every day. For this reason, the practice of the four universal vows first makes liberation of others the number one pledge, along with clarifying your own nature, cutting off the root of afflictions. We say uh, endless blind passions, I vow to uproot. Studying all teachings and carrying out the activities of bodhisattvas so compassion and knowledge are completely fulfilled. This is called the way of Buddhas. You should realize that great compassion is the foundation for actual attainment of Buddhahood. That is, enlightenment, full enlightenment. Observe all people thoroughly, how they ignore basics and pursue trivia greedily fixated on avaricious occupations, dying here and born there, compulsively repeating all sorts of futile routines. In the heavens there are five deteriorations, in the human realm there are eight difficulties, The eight difficulties, there's a footnote here. Uh, it refers to the difficulty of attaining enlightenment in eight conditions. Hellish states, animalistic states, extreme greediness. Uh, this is uh, in our the, the lowest of the three realms of unenlightened existence. Uh, hell, animals, and uh, uh, Ashura... Ashura uh, Hungry ghosts and thirsty spirits, he calls here, the translator calls it extreme greediness. 
a meditative paradise of apparent perpetuity, the Deva realm, an earthly paradise of longevity, blindness, and deafness. Now he's losing me. These don't line up with the... They're eight, and I know only of six. Intellectual brilliance. Oh, that's interesting. One of the eight difficulties. The difficulty of attaining enlightenment. Intellectual brilliance. They also say uh, wittiness. And birth before or after the time of a Buddha. Before or after the time of a Buddha. And then he he drives home the, with a coup de grace. He says, try to compare their states of mind with your own state of mind. Furthermore, all living beings are your parents and siblings over lifetimes and generations to whom your gratitude and love ought to be as toward your present parents and siblings. Considering this, you, can cer- you certainly must develop an attitude of great compassion. He seems to have been exposed to Tibetan Buddhism. Um, this is a, a, something you commonly read in Tibetan texts. Uh, that all living beings have been your parents and brothers and sisters over lifetimes. Obviously, it's a way to evoke universal compassion toward all beings. is uh, and to say it's an important point he's making is an understatement this is the ultimate aspiration is to go beyond our own wish for beyond wishing for enlightenment for ourselves which is all fair enough of course we all want to awaken, but then go beyond that. And and it is, of course, true that uh, awakening is really for the purpose of having purified ourselves enough that we can give help the deepest, most effective help of others. To whatever degree we still labor under delusions of self and other, to whatever degree we are contaminated by even traces of egotism, our efforts to help others will not be thorough, will not be pure. Everyone can understand this and appreciate it, but but really there is no greater source of 
effort, exertion in practice, then this aspiration to want to help others as completely as we possibly can. It takes our, our exertions to an entirely different level. It's, it takes it out of the realm of grasping. It elevates it. It turbocharges our efforts when we see that so many people are depending on us. So many people are in terrible states of suffering. How do we respond to them most effectively? It starts here. It starts by seeing clearly through this illusory self. We'll stop now and recite the four vows. All beings without number Thank you.